Hello, you are listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast with me, Liam Caswell, where I help clinicians just like you take control of their careers and remove all the things stopping you from achieving your biggest goals. Let's dive in. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to the podcast. We have an amazing guest here today with us, Donna Nair. Welcome to the podcast. How are you going? Really good. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast, Lee. It's a pleasure to be asked. Of course. I'm so excited to dive in and talk all things wound care today, amongst many other amazing topics. But before we do, let me tell you a little bit more about Donna. So Donna Nair is an advanced practice nurse who has extensive clinical experience working with complex wounds and lower limb lymphedema in public health, disability, aged care, and private practice. Having worked in wound care roles for 20 years, Donna completed accredited lymphedema training and finally married her two clinical passions together three years ago and founded Good Wound Care, a mobile private practice. I love that so much. She works in interdisciplinary teams and cares for patients in Geelong, Ballarat and regional Victoria who have chronic or difficult to treat wounds. Donna provides community-based services that reduce healing times, improve patients' ability to care for their own wounds and help to prevent future wounds. Donna's nursing practice is informed by the core values of consistency, collaboration, and compassion. And these drive the model of care at Good Wound Care. That is amazing. I absolutely love everything that you do. And there's so much that I want to ask you. But before we do, let's dive into exploring your career story. So what's got you here? Tell us all the things. Oh, goodness. It is a whole career story, I think, Liam, and it's it's a hard one to put together and to make really succinct, isn't it? Because I'm a really firm believer that, you know, all of your experience, everything really builds up to where you are. Mm. And that is certainly true in my nursing career. Had you said to me 31 years ago when I, you know, first kind of signed on to this career path that I would be doing what I am doing now, I certainly would have had no idea I would have been working with wounds, lymphedema, what's that? And even in private practice, you know, even maybe five or six years ago, I would have, you know, said, no way, not for me. So it's interesting how it evolves over time. And then you look back and you go, well, and I think, you know, you're obviously reflecting in nursing a lot. I think that's part mm-hmm. of what high performance does. And you realise, yeah, I really probably was following, you know, what I was destined to or calling. And I fell into those places that were, that felt right and that I was good at. So, you know, so for me, Yes, I've been a nurse for 31 years. I um, probably was always destined to be. I you know, did the nursing for some work experience and I had some mental health issues when I was a teenager and I had dropped out of school and I went to do enrolled nurse training, mm. you know, way back then when it was still in hospitals and PTS and that kind of thing. It makes me sound really <laughs> <Stop>. old. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. But, you know, so I've, I've actually had a benefit. I've gone back, obviously, and done my RN tertiary base, so I've really been able to compare both of those systems. So, you know, I had a bit of a gap year after I did my enrolled nursing. I travelled and worked in the UK, not as a nurse, just, you know, kind of took a year, a year out, you know, came back to Victoria, did some agency work, worked in kind of GP land for a while. And after about two years, I'm like, no, no, i kind of got to go somewhere else now. So then I made that decision to kind of go back to uni mm. in my 20s. Yeah, look, I found uni really hard. It was really good. I was doing what I loved. But, yeah, it was it was interesting. I think I'd already been in the workforce and I probably found that you know hard to get back into the study. And it was when, you know, I started doing placements and that 
type of thing, particularly in hospitals. I think that's when I re- first identified I don't want to work in a hospital. Now, I've had heaps of jobs in hospitals mm-hmm. and I, I'm not, you know, dissing hospitals or that acute kind of system. But, you know, for me, that was where I really first started to challenge myself on some of those system things. So when I did a grad year, I got into, was really privileged to get into an RDNS grad year in Melbourne. And so I um, worked there for a number of years and that's where I first kind of fell into wound care. It was a clinical, you know, an area that you, you do a lot of, you know, maybe about 50% of your time was spent with wounds and particularly on the lower limb and pressure injuries. So I, it was such a practical problem solving type of thing and I was good at it and I enjoyed it. But, you know, had you said to me, I was going to do kind of leg ulcers, I wouldn't have thought that was a very cool thing to do. <laughs> Most unsexy. So, you know, that's where I am. So you know, a number of jobs since then and got into, you know, dedicated wound roles. So I've been doing, you know, wounds for about 20 years. Wow. Uh, about, yeah, so about five years ago, I did a lymphedema course that's accredited with the Australasian Lymphology Association. So if people don't know what lymphedema is, certainly, you know, Google the ALA and, and have a look there. They've got a good YouTube channel about lymphedema as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a growing area. Because what I was finding in my wound care was, you know, predominantly working in the community. So many people that we see have chronic edema and, and a, a, you know, dual diagnosis of lymphedema from a variety of reasons. And, you know, you would send them off to the lymphedema clinics and they're, they're great. They've got really skilled people, but in the public space, they're not really well funded for the really complex people that we're seeing. And, you know, so the message really was if you fix up the wound and then we'll deal with the lymphedema. It's like, well, they can't fix up this wound until we deal with the lymphedema. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, and I just wanted to be able to do more in my practice and that's where it's, you know, evolved, I guess, to where I am now. I've had, from an advanced nursing practice, I really grew a lot in the uh, nine or ten years that I was with the regional wound consultants in Victoria, so regional wounds Victoria. Mm. And so that's where you're a wound consultant over a geographical region and you're building capacity in nurses and, you know, building statewide resources, that was a huge area of growth or time of growth for me. Mm. Also, I spent time at Ballarat Hospital and I've been at um, Geelong Hospital down at Barwon Health as well in a variety of wound care roles. And so, yeah, I've been really privileged to come alongside awesome people, awesome clinicians, wound and other clinicians and have yeah, just learned so much. And then, yeah, so I've been building private practice for two or three years and then about this time last year, it was just time for me to make that move to full-time work so that's where I am and that is amazing what an amazing thing like you've created obviously there's a huge demand for it and a need for it in the sector and I love all of the things you touched on there in terms of your career and trying lots of different things because there is this narrative that you've got to find something stay in it and just stick with it even if you're burnt out misaligned angry upset react all of the things I hear it all the time from people where they say but I can't, like I can't move to that specialty or I can't try different things because I need to do X amount of years in this field. And again, every guest that comes on is an example of what's possible when you just follow your curiosity and you just go for what it is that you're interested in. And I love that analogy of like, you don't know where you're going at the time, but on reflection, you could probably see that it was just gearing you up to get you to where you wanted to be within wound care specifically. Yeah, it is certainly about following your passions and I think and cross-pollinating a lot too. That jumped out for me, just what you were saying there. I think we cross-pollinate a lot, you know. Mm. I see a lot of nurses who 
they'll say, oh, I want to go into this area, I want to go into that area. and Or I didn't enjoy my time in that area. But, you know, I've been around so long enough to know that you'll still get something out of it and you'll still use that when you launch forward. Yeah. Yeah. Such a good lesson. I love all of that, Donna. What would you say to nurses who, you know, feel like they're really lacking skills in wound care? Because I think it's one of those things that, correct me if I'm wrong, but in university, it's not covered. No one kind of really talks in great depth about wound care, wound assessment. We kind of just brush across it and then we come into the workforce and we're overwhelmed with all of the different varieties and types of wounds, all of the skin problems. Where do we even start? Yeah, it's a huge area, isn't it? And some of it I think is really challenged by the fact that it's such a, a quickly growing discipline. We're learning new things all the time, you know, even compared to what I was doing five or ten years ago has really changed a lot. So it is a challenge for education. And I guess I worry a lot that when I'm seeing, you know, new stuff on a floor or wherever that might be, just have to be a floor in a hospital, of course. And I think, well, they're learning from the other clinicians on the floor. They're learning that individual system. But often that will fall down to the skill, knowledge, expertise of that person they're up there with and you know wounds might not be their thing and then you get into this pattern of you know copying what was done next and I see it all the time mm. so yes it would be great to have more wound education in tertiary look it's exactly the same with lymphedema and it's exactly the same in the medical world as well you know there are some people who are doing it but there's not a lot of time spent on wounds and there needs to be I'm not really sure what the answer is but you know there are people you know always flying that flag I think if you know for someone who's really interested it's going to depend on what area they either do that graduate what area they're working what types of wounds they're seeing um and I always say this you know people approach me all the time in my visits and ask me you know I want to learn some more about wounds what can I do I just want to say I need half an hour to sit down with you and go through xyz and some of that for me is about trying to work out where on that that might not be the most recent thing where on that you know Brenner's scale of novice to expert they're sitting Mm. one of my mentors many years ago you know I was expressing some frustration about you know people not wanting to learn and you know she's saying try to you know find out you know see if you can work out where they are on that scale from novice to expert Mm. and I'm sure there's plenty of other models out there more recent but and it was you know focusing on the people who do want to learn so if someone is really interested in wounds what have they already done? Have they done anything? Or is this just the first question that's coming up? What have they tried? Mm-hmm. There's a plethora of readily available courses and webinars and readings and guidelines and people to rub shoulders with. But going to the person in your organisation, on your ward, you know, who is the go-to wound person? There is usually one or more, mm-hmm. you know, who just is that go-to person. And they're a really good start. What One of the things I see people not doing who you know, express, I really want to get into wounds and what should I do? Maybe I can't afford to go and do postgraduate studies. I've done lymphedema postgraduate studies, but I haven't actually done wound care postgraduate studies. Mm. But I know a lot of really good clinicians who haven't and not taking anything away from the ones who have absolutely role for that. But it's experience that you have to marry up with that education. So if, if they're in a role, if they want to get into wounds, they need to be in there with their hands on. The more you can get your hands dirty with wounds the more you can change the dressing that you put on and learn from that the better you know things like joining wounds australia our you know peak body 
for wound care. You know, you get access to lots and lots of webinars and you're rubbing shoulders with people who are in the industry, you know, like myself, and you're going to be able to learn and you kind of triangulate all your learning together. That's the key. People want to go to a course and have it done. Mm. And you must marry up with experience and you must marry up with networking in the industry. I just see that so much. Yeah. So for the people who you know want to be that key person, that, that's my take-home advice. I love that. There is so much to explore within that space. And when I was a nurse educator in Canberra, I went to a Wounds Australia event and it was an evening thing. And it was great, yep. you know, and you're right. Like the room is full of experts people there to learn and grow and develop and it was reasonably priced as well from memory and I got so much out of it hmm. as an educator I was like trying to cover five different wards and trying to help everybody across all the areas and I didn't have the foggiest to be honest because again it's a gap right it's something that is a specialty skill and we didn't have the luxury of having access to a wound care nurse or CNC or nurse consultant or APN so such a valuable service in terms of wound care and getting back to basics, I think basics is always a good place to start because even though we're very skilled clinicians, we're highly trained. I'm sensing that maybe based on my experience, and I'm sensing from your reaction that there are some basic fundamentals that maybe we should be focusing back on. What would you say they are and what should we be really kind of zoning in on? Oh, yeah, I just love that you said that. <laughs> Let's do it. You're all there. You're all over it, aren't you? You know, it's good. Oh, look, yeah, I'm always, you know, people are going to hear me broken record. It's always about the basics and, you know, basic nursing care. It's a, I'm going to sound really basic here, Liam. People aren't cleaning between toes. Mm -hmm. People aren't washing skin. People aren't giving good hygiene. And these are the absolute hallmarks. You know, are we assessing skin properly? Are we picking up? That stage four unstageable pressure injury a couple of days beforehand, before it develops. But yeah, I love even no matter what I'm doing now, I will always go back to basics. It's always the basics. I'll go back to what is not being done. And it's usually the basics. Mm. And that could be, are we cleaning the wound properly? How long are we leaving that dressing on for? Have we done a proper wound assessment? And yes, you can look at all the really complex stuff and that needs to be done, but always do the basics first. They're just not negotiable and usually when I track back and I'm formulating care plans it's you know you can you know 99 times out of 100 you know, put those basics in place and you'll have a massive improvement mm -hmm. so look you know these days we're talking about things like using the proper cleansers and you know, surfactant soaks those types of things you know, advanced wound dressings, leaving them on for the right amount of time, addressing nutrition, mobility, edema, of course. I'm always going to be fine the flag for lymphedema. There's often chronic swelling in those types of wounds. Mm. What are we doing to debride that wound? In And not everyone has to, you know, go for those wounds with a sharp implement. If people think debride, oh, no, I can't debride, I can't pick up a blade. Well, there's really new models of care now around wound hygiene that talk about everyone can do wound debridement because, you know, 90 to 100% of wounds are chronic wounds, we're talking hard-to-heal wounds, not your acute wounds that are moving through uh, normal ordered, you know, stages of healing. 95% of those wounds are going to have a biofilm, so they've got bugs in them that are covered in a matrix in a slime that, you know, no antimicrobial dressing is going to impact unless we get in there and physically rub it off. So, you know, gauze scrubbing and surfactant soaks and those type of things, and I usually find they're not being done. We 
you know, put a really good plan in place. And people change dressings too often too. So, okay, that wasn't working this week. I think we'll change it to something else. Oh, that didn't work in a couple of days. So we're going to change it to something else. Something different all the time. And that poor wound doesn't know what it's doing. And that poor patient gets really frustrated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't help either. Yeah. yeah. And look, and I have to say, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go on forever, Liam. <laughs> client goals are everything. Patient, client, resident goals. I deal with a lot of different you know, names for people. What does the client need? It's not always to heal. Sometimes we try to heal everything. Not everything's healable. Mm. It's about breaking it down in a smaller step. So what's our short-term goal? And then what might be our next goal? And if we move through enough of those, we then might get to the end goal, which very well may be healing. But, you know, the last stage of wound healings, not it's actually when the wound is healed. We've also got to prevent that thing from coming back. Mm-hmm. And we need to be talking about prevention really early on when we, when we go in we're starting to work out how we're going to heal it. So, yeah, there's lots to unpack. Mm-hmm. That often can't be done in the first visit. And so I think nurses want to get very task-oriented in wound care too. Yeah. You know, get in, get that dressing done. There's an element of that. Yeah. But... It's thinking about the bigger picture and, and the team. So bringing in all your allied health, that's your basic fundamental principles as well. No, there is, yeah, definitely it's not a one-man show. <laughs> can't do what we do unless we've got those mm. <laughs> uh, allied staff. They're so important, mm. yeah. But do you find that it often is or does become a bit of a one-man show in the sense that we're still not that great or we're getting better at being a bit more collaborative and multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary in, in nature? Because I'm thinking back to my clinical experiences, you know, the doctor comes, pulls the dressing down, doesn't tell anybody they're doing it, leaves it open for the next three hours. <laughs> the nurse is too busy put up. Yep, totally. You know, we've still got a bit of a bad culture around wound care. And I remember learning something, and please correct me if I'm wrong again, but around like wound bed temperature and, you know, the impact of taking the dressing off and how it impacts healing and all of the things. Yeah, uh, that's a huge one. That's one of those basics I'm you know, teaching my patients all the time too. I do a lot of self-care, so a lot of the patients I have will be self-caring for their wounds or there might be a little bit of you know, healthcare input. But often they're you know, teaching the patient those things for me in the community space really, really helps. But I still, I still get that happening. So they'll go and they'll have the appointment and the doctor will change it to something else. And there's some great doctors out there I'm not, in any way, just mm. some doctors, there's some really, really good ones. But I think, you know, getting back to your, your first point about wounds and, yeah, it can get, people get a bit possessive with them. So it's my wound and I, I say this is what we're doing. And often when I come in, particularly in a, there's really complex things going on, it took a long time to get that way. It takes a long time to unpack them. But, you know, you might have seven or eight different disciplines or professions kind of feeding into that one wound mm-hmm. and sometimes they're all needed and sometimes they're not and I think we think we're working interdisciplinary but often they're not talking to each other so it's not doesn't always happen easily and I think it's very contextual in the setting that you're working in too like the acute setting is not always the best environment to unpack some of those complex wounds they're there for something else you know mm-hmm. they come in with a chronic wound or they're there to have it surgically debride or have, you know some other cute thing done but you know often it's just really rationalizing who's needed and making sure you're all on the same page i find going back to goals you know no matter what the setting's really important so okay someone might want dressing a someone might want b someone might want c but what are we actually trying to achieve so we're we trying to dry the thing out we're trying to make it more moist we're trying to debride the tissue we're trying to deal with the infection what are we actually trying to do and then you can compromise compromise is everything so if we're on the same goal trying to achieve the same thing, let's let's work out what we're going to do to do that and everyone's happy with that and then we'll review it 
in a week or two. And if it's not heading in that direction, then you've got some clinical evidence to change and have those conversations. And usually when you can, in wound care, I know I'm coming along with the, you know, the expert hat on, but usually when you can have those conversations with your colleagues, whether it's nursing, podiatry, medical, whoever's actually doing the dressing, because it's not just nurses who do the dressing, you can really unpack, you know, who actually kind of understands the most about this and what are the competing interests and what does the client want? Often I'll hinge a lot of my careful conversations on what the client wants. Yeah. That's a big thing. So, you know, my little catch line is your wound matters. Mm. And that's because I work in the community and I, I see a lot of clients who they're, everything revolves around their problem wound. They've got often complex health things going on, living with lots of comorbidities and things happening. But their wound is the one thing that really affects their life and affects everything they want to do. Mm. And they don't think it's very important, but it is actually really important. Then their wound does matter. And sometimes arming them with the conversation, you know, going to the GP or saying, well, I want to do this, is really, really powerful. Mm. Yeah, that's such rewarding work and in involving the patient back in the care. And I love that perspective of bringing it back to the goals and, and making sure when we're in that task-focused mindset, it can be hard sometimes to pull ourselves back out of it and look from a distance and kind of have that situational awareness and then assess and be like, well, actually, John, what do you really want here? You know, this is what we think is best for you. And I love that in the acute setting, maybe that's not the best place to fix all the problems, but that's what we try and do. That's okay. That's what we do all the time. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you'll have the nurse who comes up to you and say, I just want to learn about wounds. You know, what? And I'll say to them, and I'll, it's a bit of a fleece when I put it out to them, you know, it's not about the dressing. And they kind of look at you and then they're looking a bit puzzled and it's really not about the dressing. It's like, and you just stumped them completely. And it's really not. The dressing's just a vehicle that so many people kind of, and, and it's important to know about dressings. Absolutely. They're really important mm-hmm. to all of our trade. But yeah, if, if we can, I think shifting that mindset from not thinking about the dressing and which one we use has much bigger conversations yeah. to have. And sometimes it's quite okay for me to put in place a care plan or to persist with a care plan even for a short period of time that I'm not really happy with because it's also not about me. Mm. Sometimes their relationship with their doctor is really, really important and I can, I'm can i quite okay with that and it might take longer to get there or there's another way of work around the way we can go about it. So I guess that's why I really like wound care too because it's about problem solving and there's always more than one way to achieve something. Yeah. Let's go there. Let's talk about the fact that it's not about the dressing because you got me stumped as well. (laughs) And I would love to explore that because I think that you're right. We all do think it's about the dressing. We think like, oh, my God, there's this magic dressing that's going to fix it. Oh, it'd be lovely. So talk to us about that. What is it about? Yeah. Look, you said it earlier. You picked up on it and I didn't touch base on it when you was your previous question where you said there's so many different, and I thought you were going to say, so many different dressings because that's what most people say. But you didn't. You said there are so many different wound types Mm. and, you know, that's music to our ears. So, you know, if you're going to any of those Wounds Australia events, a lot of them always free webinars, not free, but, you know, very subsidised webinars that they have for members, they'll always be often pitched at a particular wound type. So to break it down really, really simply, there's four different steps in wound healing and there's lots of different models. You can do all those, they're fine. Mm. Essentially, everything fits into these four. So it's first, define your etiology. What's the cause of the wound? That's your wound type. 
and that might be your wound type might be very different to your mechanism of injury you know how it happens so okay it might be a traumatic wound that's the mechanism of injury but there might be underlying venous disease it might be a venous ulcer that's stopping it from healing so that's what type of wound it is mm. unless you're addressing that you can put the most expensive or cheap dressing on you know mostly it's not it's not going to heal or it's really going to struggle to heal and then the second thing is controlling factors affecting healing so your nutrition mm. hydration mobility medications smoking you know other comorbidities they've got on million things in there because unless you're managing those you also are going to really struggle to get that thing healed mm, and again yeah. i'm talking about hard to heal wounds i'm not talking about yeah. your acute wounds that are simple and moving through an orderly process mm. and then the third thing is assess your wound and choose a dressing that's where your dressing comes in mm. so yes it is really important to pick a dressing that matches your wound assessment and the fourth one is wound prevention and plan to keep it healed in the diabetic foot world diabetic foot ulcers so another type of wounds Oh, it's quite a prominent podiatric surgeon in the States. It talks about those wounds being in remission. Mm. You know, we think about cancer, we think about remission. Often in these wounds that we've healed, we haven't actually done anything and we can't do anything a lot of the times about the underlying pathologies as to why a wound is there in the first place. So sometimes, you know, pressure injuries, diabetic foot ulcers, arterial ulcers, venous ulcers, and a whole heap of those. We're supporting the client to heal and we're doing a good wound assessment and a good wound dressing. But if we all of a sudden strip those things away, so bam the first time you go, that wound's healed, and we're marking it and we're, we're marking on the care plan and we're saying to the patient, well done, it's all healed, we're pulling out now, we're gone. And if you take all those things away, they're going to be back. You know? yeah. I think we have to look up the latest rate, but it's something like 70% of venous leg ulcers are recurring wow. wounds within you know, a couple of months or maybe six months, something like that. Don't quote me. I'll have to look that up. Mm. so you know a lot of these people are, i call them repeat offenders i don't mean that negatively <laughs> but they're coming back again so they're getting the pressure injury again so that last stage of healing and that last stage of you know what we're trying to do isn't also about the dressing the wound takes between one and two years to get to 70 to 80 percent of its original tensile strength that it had pre-wounding wow so after about a yeah that's huge and i use that all the time when i'm teaching staff all the time when i'm teaching patients because mm. yeah the last thing i'm going to do is run away as soon as that wound is healed you've actually got your last stage of wound healing your maturation stage which can take up to two years mm. and it will always be weaker it's never going to get full tensile strength they get another wound it's weaker again they get another wound and it's weaker again and you're on this absolute merry-go-round mm. so when i say things like it's not about the dressing the dressing will help you with one aspect of the wound care, but for these complicated, you know, ulcers, ulcerations, complicated wounds, particularly when they're of a recurring nature, mm. you've got to be managing the etiologies, comorbidities, factors affecting healing, good dressing care, and planning for maintenance as well. So it's a real package deal. So I guess I say that a lot. You know, most woundies like you know myself and care people will really understand that it's not about the dressing. But yeah, it kind of floats people a little bit, you know, when you say it really isn't, and it's just, and it's just that task, oriented, and that's quite okay. That's that's that's, mm. that's fine. But it just, it's opens people up. So when you someone says, "I want to do a course in wounds," and I want to get into it, you know, that's why I try to I tease that out of them. Do you kind of get what wound cares about? Mm. Because you could be a really good clinical support nurse, you know, focus on dressings and doing the task, and that's really really important. But there's a whole heap more to it. Yeah. 
And that was certainly one of the things that drove me to do lymphedema training mm. because I could just see so many of my clients needed that and I felt unequipped to properly deal with them. Mm. So how does lymphedema complicate or you know, how does it add to the wound care issues you know, in the, the, the limbs? Talk us through that. Mm. Yeah, so uh, lymphedema is a huge area. <laughs> It's lymphedema is a, a, a capacity or non-capacity of the lymphatic system to take up and transport um, lymph you know, back into the circulation. Mm. And we know that, you know, 90% of fluid that leaves the arteries will actually go via the lymphatic system first before it returns to the veins mm. at the capillary level. So as we used to say before, you know, we put up diagrams of the circulatory system, you know, down arteries back up through veins at a gross level in actual fact you can't separate it from the lymphatic system so and i'm trying to often manage chronic edema with a lot of these people so they've got really limited mobility uh, they've got venous disease they often they might have fixed joints things like you know diabetes strokes and there's systemic issues that affect their mobility and you know vascular supply as well so they often have and it's just if they've got a wound they're in pain, they can't move as well, they're going to have edema, they're going to have fluid. Mm. That is not a transitory, acute type of edema. They've got you know, more complex needs. So that's where we'll get the physio to come in or get the OT to come in, mm. things like that. That's where you need to be talking to the doctor about those things. So, you know, and it's not just so from a lymphedema standpoint, you know, putting people into really good garments. It's about self-care, deep breathing, movement you know there's so much to it that really empowers the patient to manage chronic edema a lot of people have got in all honesty i see a lot of people with edema who are like a late stage two stage three which is at the end stage of the disease and they've got mm. really quite extreme gross problems and skin conditions and they've got wounds because of it so yeah i'm, I'm seeing the really really tricky type of clients Mm. multiple comorbidities and they're getting sicker in the community they're living with more we say that about hospitals so much we're seeing more people not with one or two comorbidities about five or six well they're living out there in the community as well mm. and there is that need so when i first started private practice i really didn't know what the percentage would be of my wound versus lymphedema clients and there's such a mix and i'm seeing so much more you know just edema mm. yeah yeah, wow. Such rewarding work. I'm so glad that someone like you is doing it and is out there helping people because mm. it's, it's so critical, clearly. Mm. I'm curious to ask this question, a bit of a random question, but it was one that came up when I was thinking about chatting to you today. Yeah. And it's around the idea of like pressure injury in the in the work, you know, in the hospital setting or maybe even in the community, but yeah. most of our listeners probably work within an acute or a subacute setting. Yep. Yeah. And there's been a huge push right through the national standards for safety and quality in healthcare to look at our hospital acquired yeah. infections and complications. Yeah. Intrigued, just from your perspective, are we, do you think we're getting better at reducing pressure injuries and, and maintaining skin integrity? Or do you think we're kind of, where, where do you think we're landing with that? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. I think we are getting better. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. I think there's still, yeah, no, totally. And it's a really hard road. It's it's difficult. Look, I've been at two, you know, regional tertiary centres who have both managed that very differently. Mm. And I've seen gains in a variety of ways. There's some good things, you know, happening up in Queensland, like everywhere. So 
the standards have been good. I think there's a potential in national standards, there's potential for um, getting very, you know, down the rabbit hole and getting very ultra-focused on compliance. Mm. And I have been professionally very frustrated with some of that. But it is about the data and as long as the data drives decisions and drives better care and you've got really good monitoring. I still think there's probably better things that can happen and I can only talk from a Victorian standpoint. Mm. Um, that could be better. We don't have good data, you know, across the state, across the state, but that's probably going to be very different in other states. I know Victoria's health system does work quite differently. Mm. But we are, there's so much more awareness of pressure injuries, you know, pressure injury stages, differences from pressure injuries to things like incontinence-associated dermatitis and moisture lesions. Mm. You know, if you had said these things five or ten years ago, it would have been a lot harder, but a lot more nurses have that awareness now. And I think people like myself in, in acute sectors mm. have done a lot more education and there's a lot more pathways um, for that and, and awareness. And there's really good products now too. I have to say like our trade partners really support education well. There's great, great you know, webinars and things to access and we have trade come into facilities and educate on those types of wounds. So mm. pressure injuries is huge. It's a huge it's, it's really hard in acute care sometimes because you've got these really critically unwell people. You would, of course, know that with your background. It can be really difficult. They're not, I think, you know what I've seen change probably in the last couple of years, which I've been really pleased with, is we used to always say, we used to come out of facilities, we need to be aiming for zero. Mm. We don't actually because there's just some you can't prevent. Irrespective of we're still doing and all of the care, we're still giving you know, best practice and we've done everything we can. They will still, whether the you know, patient's making certain choices that they're entirely ent entitled to make, doesn't mean they're non-compliant. Mm. Or uh, they're just, you know, critically unwell and despite best efforts of everyone, they go on to develop, you know, yeah. a full thickness pressure injury. But I think we're getting better. I really do. Mm. I love that. I love what you said there about the data. So I think it's important as clinicians, maybe people listening, you know, when you do climb the ladder in healthcare and you move up into more senior roles, you do get exposed to more data. You get exposed to more information and you do try your best to use that. And I think, you know, I used to think this and a lot of my peers would say, why are we having to do these risk mans or these incident reports or why am I having to do these quality, you know, um, safety audits every month about pressure injuries and so on and so forth? And it's super important because it does give us that data to then be able to say with confidence that we are doing better and that our patients are safer, although it's a little painful because <laughs> we don't love doing it because we'd rather be looking after people or doing a, a wound. Um, we do have to collect that data um, to make sure that we're improving the care. It is. Oh, look, I've been on both sides of that, but probably more so on the receiving the data side and, and you know, analysing it. You know, it is it is such a pain to do. I totally understand that. But you know, that's you know, change will come out of that. And it's not a perfect system. I don't think anyone's saying it's really perfect. You know, I've been able to tell so much about particular cultures on wards and, you know, what the issues are, what the learning needs are. You know, when you know, I've been going through those, you know, risk commands at the other end and trying to make decisions what to do with it and grilling the data. You do make improvements from it. You absolutely do. And it certainly is about the bigger picture. But I acknowledge it's so, it must be so hard to see mm -hmm. from that ward perspective. You know, where does it go? And if you're not often fed back that information. Yeah. Look, we, you know, one facility I was at, we uh, cleaned up a lot of our data. It just, just needed someone with a clinical eye over it to refine it. And, you know, we moved our 
health benchmarking stats from worst performing to nearly one of the best performing wow. um, on the health round table. So, you know, it's really, really important and it drives change. If, unless you've actually got good data, you can't advocate for change. No, yeah, no. You just can't, yeah. It's critical, isn't it? Yeah, and not even just on that note, not even just with wound care or pressure injury data. It's across the board, you know, it's across the board. It really is a mechanism like a wound dressing, I guess, to take you, to, it's a vehicle to move you forward and to help you get closer to some form of change in the setting. Yeah, it's super, super beneficial, very important. Yeah, it is. I would love to dive into and take a little pivot and dive into something you talked about in kind of the pre-show notes. And that was around this idea of weight neutral care. And I've never heard of this concept before. And when I saw it, I thought, oh my God, of course. So I'd love to dive into that. What is it? And why should we be aware of it as clinicians? Oh, Liam. That's huge. I know. No, and I did put it in, you know, and I, I felt I put it in and I took it out and I put it in and I took it out. I thought, no, I'm going to go down this road. No, I think it's great. No, it's good. I'll, I'll tell you, I was, you know, it is part of my practice. And you know, on my website, I talk about, you know, why I practice from a, a haze or H A E S standpoint. Um, and I've got a little section in, I think, in my FAQ that I'm just about to kind of edit and put a few more resources in. But I'll tell you, I, was, I included it in, you know, something that I was happy to talk about because I have my own lived experience, but you had a I'm just trying to remember her name and I haven't got off the top of my head you had oh Christina Capucci Christina yeah you had an anti-diet dietitian um, a little while ago when I you know, was listening to some of your podcasts which I do from time to time <laughs> and I just thought yeah you know that was really cool look it's not widely accepted in all areas there's such huge weight bias and weight stigma in healthcare, mm. and that's where I talk about you know my own lived experience and and certainly with mental health um, so from a lived experience, it's really hard to talk about, but it's also something that a lot of people get and that a lot is becoming more people standing standing up about it. I list really reputable sources for reading and learning on this topic on my website, mm-hmm. but there's just a wealth of stuff. So for me, you know, I have a lot of people, a lot of clients who are living in larger bodies mm. and who've been very, you know, pathologised because of that and, you know, labelled non-compliant and, you know, they're told they need to lose weight. They're not necessarily supported to do that or they can't. But, you know, despite that, their body is talked about in a very negative way and, you know, research shows that that's not inspiring. It's actually really, really harmful. So a lot of this weight-neutral mm. weight neutral care comes from a trauma-informed space. Not a lot of, I think a lot of people understand, you know, body positivity, but it's so much more than that. You know, a lot of people can't think positively about their body for whatever reason. And so it just becomes, well, can you just think neutrally about your body mm-hmm. and that your body is good no matter what size it is yeah. and deserves looking after, mm-hmm. you know, and irrespective of what your weight does, not anti-weight loss or anti-weight gain. Yeah. It's about looking after your body. We do know that 95% of people who do intentional weight loss will, you know, obviously lose a lot of weight, but will gain weight back within two to five years and most of them will go, there's a percentage that will go on to gain more, 95%. So most of the studies stop at two years. So when they're saying, oh, this type of system works, the research then stops and they can't actually get the long-term outcomes 
So, you know, people know how big they are. And so it's not something that I get into with my clients unless they want to, but I really treat them from a very weight neutral perspective. And, and you just, you can really see people come out of, mm. come out of their shell and take better care of them. I'm, I, you know, end up talking to people about things like, you know, hygiene and looking after their skin and looking after their bodies in order to get their wound better or to fix up their lymphedema and to you know, manage it better. And, and yeah, a lot of clients have been told they need to lose weight and, you know, it's not an evidence-based way yeah. to work. So, but look, it's controversial. Mm. It is, and we've got a lot of space to, you know, improve certainly in the healthcare because mm. you know, it's a massive, it's a massive, you know, weight loss diet industry. But we'll get there. We'll get there. I just would encourage, you know, your listeners, if they want to learn more about it, to do some reading. There's fantastic resources. Yeah. I think I'm so glad you brought it up and I'm glad that you popped it in the notes because I had never heard of it. And as you talk more about it, I'm just reflecting on my practice and working as a leader in this in the system and working. My last job was in a subacute rehab space and we had a lot of patients who were living down larger bodies and that terminology you know, we weren't using that terminology for sure. And the power of language in itself, even just for your perception of how you're going to deliver care, I guess changes. As soon as you said that, I thought, oh, wow, it's a totally different viewpoint. And where you're actually seeing the person for who they are instead of the perceived problem in quotations here, because it was like, oh, you know, our bariatric patient in bed 14. And it was always kind of used almost, this is not a positive thing, but I would hear it all the time across the, the hospital. It was used as like a staffing thing. You know, it was used as ammunition yeah. like to get more staffing and all of this. And hearing you talk about that just shows the level of judgment that as clinicians, even though we're there to do the best that we can, we still have a lot of work to do in all of the spaces. But the reality is, is that we do have people that want to just live in the skin and be who they are. And not everybody needs to lose weight and be <laughs> what is perceived on the telly as fit and healthy, right? But we need to, to accommodate that, right? Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, the Dr. Asha Lamy from the UK, who is the, called the Fat Doctor UK, and Dr. Josh Woolrich, and everything endocrinologist from um, uh, Greg Dodell from New York, and there's plenty of others they often talk about there's actually no one condition that is caused by being fat. Mm. There just isn't. You know, so, yeah, so it really is is a hard concept to get your head around. It took me a really, really long time, but it's, you know, absolutely changed mm-hmm. my practice. And, um, yeah, I've been dealing with a lot of, you know, traumatised people. Yeah. It intersects with a lot of other, you know, minority groups as well. So it's a big, it's also a big social justice movement. And yeah, as I said, trauma-informed practice as well. So yeah. yeah, but it is, it just makes you stop and think. And look, I really take on board what you said about, you know, the you know, your own bias. I certainly have that. Everyone still has some. It's, you know, it really is quite there. And it's hard to stand up to colleagues sometimes. You know, it's things like, you know, so I don't use the words, you know, obesity and bariatric so much in my, you know, documentation. But, you know, sometimes like, you know, I'll see like so many clients a day and you just don't get one client who's not, you know, labelled yeah. obesity. And it just, it just becomes a very pathologised mm. standpoint and, and affects people, you know, how, how people are treated. Yeah. 
It's, you know, I'm just reflecting on it now and thinking to myself, even the language that we use in the corridors or getting equipment, you know, or we need a bariatric bed, you know, like just the terminology. And just if that's overheard, you know, by somebody that is our intention, of course, is never to harm anybody on a physical or psychological, emotional level. But even still, like, it's such a valid point because as a queer person, somebody LGBTQI, I don't like to be labelled, so why then would I, yep. you know, choose to label someone else because of their body size and shape? 100%. Mm. Lots of thoughts that I'm having there, and I'm sure people listening mm. will be questioning their language that they use because language is so powerful, and it does cut through, mm. you know, and we can choose better language so that we are not affecting people. It really does. It really does. And look, if people are interested in reading more, and it's just about being curious, you know, that's all. Yeah. It's a bit of a journey, all of that. Give me a couple of weeks. I will have some updated resources on my links page. I'm actually building a, a bit more of a section in my resources for clinicians. It's very client-focused at the moment, but I'll be building in more clinician resources, and particularly on the, the whole weight inclusivity. You know, there'll be a few links there. So I love that. All of those links will be in the show notes so people can access them. Mm. We could talk forever. I'm sure there's so many things that I want to ask you and explore, but I would love to, or conscious of your time, would love to wrap up and ask you what it's been like Lot of setting up your own business, you know, working in private practice. A lot of nurses, midwives, you know, within the profession have a goal of moving into their own thing. It's kind of becoming a whole <laughs> nursepreneur industry thing, you know, moving forward. Tell us some of the lessons that you've learned that you're happy to share. Oh yeah, look, it's yes. I'll have to be. I'll have to limit myself because I could go on for a while. <laughs> Thank you. It is. Look, there are all these, you know, nursepreneurs and solopreneurs in nursing, and I just, I completely agree, Liam. Even with what you saw, you know, you're doing is just. I think it's absolutely amazing, and people carving out these things for themselves. You know, I look at, you know, what are they, a lot of what are these you know, younger nurses are doing on Instagram and the things that they're building. Mm. I've interviewed a lot of people you know, who I've been so inspired by as well. And I just think, wow, I never would have thought of that area. And, and to hear their stories, it's just so good. I love that there's a story behind them. Mm, mm. For me in private practice, it's so scary <laughs> initially. But, you know, you surround yourself. I've really learnt and learning. You never stop learning. Oh, my goodness. Mm. You need to surround yourself with good people and with a cheer squad and people who will speak into your life <laughs> as well. You know, so that that whole you know coaching and, and mindsets absolutely everything. I think outsourcing is my new favourite word for the last twelve months. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen. Ooh, yeah, I know. Oh, productivity. Yeah. So you know, but it's been a real challenge for me, and I would encourage anyone who's thinking about it. Yeah, and I think you've said, but I've heard it said elsewhere too. You know, don't think about the like, how's it going to happen? Just, mm. like, take the first step, something like that. I'm probably misquoting you there. <laughs> it does happen, you know, and for me, someone gave me really good advice of two years ago. I was doing some chatting to other people in, in private business in kind of wounds, and it's like, just do something. Just take the first step. Mm. Just take the first step, and the next thing will lead to the next thing, and the next thing will lead to the next thing, and goodness, it does, and, you know, you don't often know where you're going to end up, and I still don't know. If you said to me, you know, what's your practice going to look like in three years, five years, ten years, whatever, you know, probably different to what I think now. I've got an idea, but I'm still working it out as I go along, and having a plan is really important. Having people look at that plan is really important. 
But mm. I think the more you can invest in yourself and your mindset, it just is really, really everything, mm. Mm. you know. And that's where I've really enjoyed, you know, the work that you're doing as well, Liam. So, you know, thank you for everything that you pour into that so passionately. Thank you. Yeah. It's having such an effect on people. It just thank has you. to be. Mm. Yeah, thanks so much, Donna. That that means a lot to me. And I think you're well. Of course, you're right. You're doing. You're living. You're breathing it. It's scary, right? It's scary pushing our boundaries. But I guess the lesson that we learn in this journey is that you know, like, what if? What is to, like? I love asking myself the question, like, what is possible if I just choose to bet on myself and go all ah, in? You know, yeah. and just invest in myself. It really perplexes me, and I understand where people come from to an extent. But I'm like. You're always your best investment. And the people that I get to talk to through this podcast, every one of them has chosen to invest in themselves. And that is why they're doing amazing things. It's that simple. Yeah, it really is that simple. You know, mm. And I have to remind myself every day, you know, what could I do today if I knew that I wasn't going to fail? Yeah. I, but I, you just have to remind yourself so much. Because yeah. so there are there are days that are really, really hard. And that's, that's normal, you know. Yeah, um, that's okay. and it's so different than being in in a workplace where you can go in and kind of just like maybe you have a coast day, you know, you head in for the day and you're like, oh, I've only got X about. But when you're doing it all yourself, you've got to kind of be on your A game all the time. You've got to manage lots of moving parts. But it's an amazing professional growth journey as well as a personal one. And you touched on that around mindset and coaching and having your cheerleading squad. Because it can be lonely at times, for sure, when you're running your own thing. Obviously, you connect with your patients. I'm sure that lights you up and brings a lot of joy into your day. But yeah, it's definitely a journey and a process, but one that I don't think anybody that's doing it would change. Yeah, absolutely. It's all failing forward. Failing <laughs> as forward. Well. Yes. Failing forward. Mm. Yes, I love that so much. Thank you so much, Liam. Donna, thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure. So much goodness in this episode. Thank you for sharing all of your skills, knowledge and wisdom. Where can people find you? Where can people learn more about you and what you do at the Good Wound Care? Mm, absolutely. Well, my Good Wound Care website is simply that goodwoundcare.com. Leave off the AU. And I'm mostly on Insta and Facebook, a little bit of LinkedIn as well. So I think I'll set you those links i'm fairly easy to find awesome love that make sure you check donna out and connect and uh, yeah until next time stay safe and stay forever curious thank you donna for your time thank you so much cheers if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast episode please take a wee minute to leave a review it would mean the absolute world to me if you are ready to start taking action in your career and you need some support why wait come and join my private Facebook community. The link is in the show notes below. Within the community, we take what we discuss in this podcast and we put it into action. Currently, I am looking for nurses who are ready to stop playing small and invest in themselves to create the life and the career they want to live. If that sounds like you, then please get in touch. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay forever curious, my nursing friends.